0: My guest this week is human rights campaigner and co-founder of Hong Kong Watch, Benedict Rogers. Benedict, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be with you.
0: Thank you. And we've got a lot to cover today uh, from Hong Kong to uh, Xinjiang Uyghurs and uh, of of course uh, the Tiananmen Square anniversary. But I'd I'd like to start with uh, Xinjiang and the, uh, the persecution of Uyghurs because recently we had the leak of what's been called the Xinjiang police files. And we we covered this briefly on last week's show, but could you just give an outline of what exactly this leak is and what the police files are?
1: Yes, it's a a leak of um, a a variety of of things, Uh, uh, documents, uh, uh, secret government documents, um, government officials' uh, speeches, uh, and crucially photographs of uh, Uyghurs in detention. And some of those photographs were uh, were then uh, released and, and covered by <laughs> the BBC and other media, and they show really haunting I- images of, uh, of Uyghurs uh, in incarceration, in, in detention camps.
0: So we, we, you, you just mentioned that some of the evidence that's in there, those photographs as well being particularly damning evidence, really. But why is this leak so significant? We've had leaks before relating to what's happening in Xinjiang and to the the Uyghurs. But why is this different?
1: I think the, there are two things that uh, make it uh, different. I mean, you're right. There've been a number of leaks before, and I think this, uh, you know, adds to to those and builds up the body of of evidence. Um, the uh, some of the documents and speeches uh, show. Uh, the uh, complicity or not just complicity, the actual orders of um, the very highest levels in the Chinese regime, Xi Jinping and and others, uh, which other leaks have also uh, shown. But I think what's significant about this is, I think it's one of the first times there has been leaks of uh, the images uh, of uh, life inside the the, the camps. Uh, And also, of course, it was significant because it came out more or less at the same time that the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, began her visit to China. And um, I'm happy to comment on that if you want me to. It was, in my view, an absolute disaster uh, in terms of um, truth and justice and human rights and quite a propaganda victory uh, for the regime. But um, what was significant was these these leaks came out at at around the time that she was arriving in China. Um, She made no reference to them as far as I know. But I think we should all be pointing to them and, uh, and contrasting these leaks with, um, with, with the weakness of her uh, approach.
0: Yes, yeah, well, well, we'll look at the, uh, the High Commissioner's visit in a moment, but I'd just like to pick up on uh, some of the documents that were uh, released within this because, of course, there were the photographs which are incredibly dying, but also, as you mentioned, those documents implicating really high level officials. And with there being so many documents, it'll take a long time really for uh, uh, haw- hawkish people and uh, watchers and researchers to fully go through these. But based on the, what's public knowledge at the moment and what we've seen initially, what are some of the things that's been included in those documents? What are some of the uh, practices that have been revealed in, in this leak that some of the authorities have been practicing?
1: Well, as you say, it, it will take time to go through the documents. I, I myself have only really, uh, I, unfortunately, because of being busy with other things, I, I've I've only really read the media coverage of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had a chance to go through the documents themselves. But as I understand it, um, they really build up the picture of um, a, a policy of... Um, one of the previous leaks, some years ago, uh, used the phrase absolutely no mercy, Um uh, a policy of of uh, uh, imprisoning and torturing and and using Uyghurs for slave labor uh, and and those practices those uh, violations are not and it's clear from from the uh, police files that they're, they're not simply the acts of um, random local police officers or prison guards or officials uh, sort of acting um, on their own. It, it's clear that this is part of a a policy directed from the very top. And and basically, uh, I think we can conclude from these leaks on top of all the previous leaks that uh, essentially Xi Jinping and the very senior leadership of the Chinese Communist Party are responsible for ordering this. And, um, you know, many uh, increasing number of experts around the world are recognizing this as a genocide. And that means Xi Jinping is guilty of genocide.
0: And what, what's been the br- broad and overall reaction uh, to, to the leaks? And there are a number of MPs and peers in the UK who, again, are particularly hawkish on China and uh, will, I'm sure, be looking at this in more detail. But what do you think the reaction has been like so far? Do you think we will see maybe even a, a debate in Parliament on this issue?
1: Well, in fact, there was a, a debate, I think, um, the very day of the leak or, or, or the day after, um, basically when, when the news uh, broke, um, there was a short uh, debate in the House of Commons um, initiated by Nurz Ghani uh, that drew a lot of participation from MPs on on all sides and and was very welcome. Um, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss also uh, issued a, a statement which was again very welcome. I think the challenge we have now is there's no shortage now of debates and statements mm. um, and and in the UK and in other countries. Um, but there's still not enough uh, actual policy action, um, uh, so that's that's what I would hope will come next in terms of actions to uh, hold those accountable for uh, what what the uh, police files describe um, in the form of sanctions, in the form of of making sure that uh, we really do uh, cut out uh, slave labour from our supply chains um, and, and and various other uh, uh, steps we should take. And
0: so far, there's only been the United States government that's actually made a declaration of genocide on what's happening there. That was a policy from the Trump administration and one of the few that was actually carried on by the Biden administration. And of course, there've been other parliaments and legislatures around the world that have made a similar declaration, the UK parliament as well. Do you think once more evidence is brought to light through this leak and we've really fully started to unpack what's been revealed here? Do you think that will push more governments to make a similar
1: declaration and a similar assessment? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think um, uh, there isn't really a shortage of evidence now mm. as it is, but um, but certainly if, if further evidence uh, comes to light, which I'm sure it will, um, to, to complement what's already there. Uh, uh, and the as you say, already we have a number of parliaments that have already made this declaration. Crucially, uh, there's the judgment of the Uyghur tribunal, which is... Mm. Uh, the only um, independent uh, quasi-judicial body uh, that uh, has examined uh, the the situation because all the well-established bodies like the International Criminal Court, the International Court of Justice, uh, we can't can't get uh, them to look at it because of China's veto uh, power. Um, But the Uyghur tribunal was led by an extremely distinguished uh, panel of experts chaired by uh, very distinguished human rights lawyer, Sir Jeffrey Nice, who had prosecuted Slobodan Milosevic, and they came to the conclusion uh, that what is happening to the Uyghurs is a genocide. So I hope governments will look at uh, the U.S. Uh, administration's judgment, the resolutions from uh, several parliaments now, and the judgment of the Uyghur tribunal, and, um, and, and, and follow the, the U.S. example. Mm. So so you mentioned before about the
0: visit of Michelle Bachelet to uh, China and her her brief visit to Xinjiang in her capacity as the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights. And there's been a lot of criticism, as as you've already mentioned, around this visit. Do you you agree with much of the criticism? Do you think it was as independent as the UN is trying to make out?
1: Uh, No, I do agree with the criticism. It's very difficult to criticise... her decision to go to China because many of us have been calling for access uh, to China and to Xinjiang for some time. So when she finally got access, it it would have been difficult to say she shouldn't go. Although I do question the timing because it was clear that uh, the the regime in Beijing uh, had a very strict COVID uh, restrictions in place. It was clear they were going to use those restrictions as cover for uh, severely limiting her movements. So I question the timing of it, and I think she might have been better to uh, have delayed and to wait until COVID restrictions were, were lifted, because then if, if the regime still restricted her, uh, their agenda would be clear for, for all to see in, in, in why they're restricting her. Um, and I also criticise her for uh, the um, tone she she took. I mean, in her press conference, I, her visit, the details of her visit didn't, at least as far as I could see, uh, get very much detailed. Media coverage, but there was her press conference, and her press conference, in my view, was was appalling. I mean, it was worse than I uh, feared. Um, in, in that she she praised the Chinese government for progress on um, economic development, on on uh, mm. uh, help for the unemployed, on um, uh, women's rights, on, on uh, healthcare, um, and uh, and and barely mentioned uh, some of the really appalling atrocities. She talked about women's rights, but as far as I could see, she didn't talk about uh, widespread uh, uh, sexual violence. Mm. Um, When she talked about Hong Kong, she uh, appealed to the Hong Kong authorities to uh, 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 allow um, space for civil society, completely ignoring the fact that the draconian national security law uh, has resulted in complete shutdown uh, of most uh, civil society. So she took a very... um, a very weak and really a a position in in which she would seem to be um, doing the Chinese Communist Party's uh, work uh, for them. Um, She also, uh, it's important to note that she had uh, delayed for quite some time the release of a report from her office into the situation in Xinjiang. Now, one can, even, even if one doesn't like it, one can understand the logic of delaying the report until she'd completed the visit, because obviously if she'd released the report, the Chinese regime may well have said, OK, well, you're not coming then. Mm-hmm. Um, so so from her point of view, you can understand why she delayed the report uh, until the visit. But she has no excuse to delay the report any further. And there are rumours that she's considering doing so. And if that happened, I think that her, her, well, her credibility is already severely undermined. And I think that would just further undermine it.
0: Do you think her position is now untenable and that, in fact, she should resign as a result of this, as many have been calling for?
1: Uh, I do think that. I've actually written an op-ed which hasn't yet been published, but Mm -hmm. effectively uh, says that. And in the op-ed, I contrast her record with the record of her two predecessors, um, uh, Navi Pillay, who was uh, High Commissioner uh, two uh, High Commissioners ago, Uh, was instrumental in calling for a UN commission of inquiry into crimes against humanity in North Korea. And Zaid Raad uh, al-Hussein, Michelle Bachelet's immediate predecessor, uh, was equally instrumental in uh, addressing atrocities inflicted against the Rohingya. Um, And in total contrast to them, Michelle Bachelet has effectively sold her soul to the Chinese Communist Party regime um, and so, yeah, I think she should uh, resign. And I think um, if she doesn't resign, uh, she should not, her mandate should not be renewed when it's uh, up for renewal later this year. We need a new UN High Commissioner who who is actually prepared to stand up for human rights. Mm-hmm. And ju- just while we're on the, the United
0: Nations, and you've already mentioned this country or uh, just in your response then, but could I ask for your reaction to North Korea taking on the chairmanship of the United Nations Disarmament Committee? I mean, it would be laughable if it wasn't so serious.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when I first saw the news, I thought, surely this is a joke. Surely this is someone, you know, uh, ha- having some fun. And clearly uh, it, it, it is true. And it's totally laughable. Um, mm. I mean, the UN system, the values of the UN, of course, are, are values that we we all want to see promoted. And um, I mean, I've been to the UN in Geneva quite quite often. I interact with uh, the UN special rapporteurs on different human rights uh, issues, and I would say the rapporteurs are one of the sort of best bits of the of the UN because uh, if you get the right person in that role. But uh, there's much in the UN system that is really flawed, and um, both the presence of countries like China on the Human Rights Council, but. Uh, Most ridiculously, the idea of North Korea chairing a committee on disarmament, it's, um, yeah, it's absurd. Yeah.
0: Okay. well, we're going to go to a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be discussing the situation in Hong Kong. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back. So, we've just been discussing the situation in Xinjiang and what's been happening to the Uyghurs, but I'd like to move away from that to look at Hong Kong, because we've seen that these issues in Xinjiang are on the news quite regularly, but we're not hearing as much about the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement, especially since the pandemic as well, and of course, pre-pandemic, the the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement was all over the news, there was widespread coverage of it. So, what's the situation like in Hong Kong at the moment for those pro democracy protesters ever since the national security law came into force?
1: The situation is, uh, is really appalling and getting worse by the day. Um, Hong Kong has basically mm-hmm. gone, within the space of a couple of years, from being one of the most uh, uh, open, one of the f- freest cities uh, in Asia. Uh, to being uh, a police state. Um, And that's actually epitomized by the fact that the the new chief executive of Hong Kong who takes office on the 1st of July, John Lee, uh, who was chosen completely in a so-called election, but he was the only candidate. um, and He won, not surprisingly, 99% of the votes of the uh, hand-picked election committee, hand-picked by Beijing. Uh, he himself is a serving uh, former serving police officer. Uh, the only thing he's known throughout his career is policing and security. He was uh, a frontline police officer for, I think, 35 years. Um, and then the only positions he held in government uh, uh, were in the security uh, bureau. So he has, uh, apart from his last year uh, as chief secretary, as number two to the chief executive, um, apart from that, he basically has no experience of uh other parts of government um, so so hong kong is a police state and to answer your question about the pro-democracy movement um, essentially uh, most uh people in the pro-democracy movement are either uh, in jail uh or um keeping their heads down and perhaps awaiting trial uh, or have gone into exile um having said that it's been very inspiring today and i know we'll talk about uh, Tiananmen later but um Seeing the news out of Hong Kong today that despite the fact that uh, commemorations of uh, the Tiananmen Square massacre uh, have been completely outlawed in Hong Kong, still some individuals have tried to find creative ways to, to mark the occasion. I saw a photograph on social media of someone who um, took a photo of a, a carriage in a train that happened to have the numbers 6-4, as in June the 4th, and he just captioned it, um, I'm having a normal day taking a train to visit a friend. But the message was obvious. So the democracy movement um, ha- has on one level been driven completely uh, out in, uh, and has either been jailed or exiled um, or silenced. Uh, but at the same time, there are uh, the spirit of the democracy movement hasn't gone away. And there are individuals who are still now, despite all the challenges, uh, are finding creative ways to uh, to speak out.
0: Yeah, and you, you wrote in the Telegraph earlier this week that uh, you've received threats uh, from uh, John Lee's uh, police force. in uh, you know at, at your home, but you're based in London, and you, you know Lee, Lee's been overseeing this force for so long. How how has uh, Lee's police force been threatening you and and perhaps even other pro democracy activists?
1: Well basically um earlier this year uh we learned first of all that Hong Kong Watch's uh website had been blocked uh, in Hong Kong. And then about a month after it was blocked uh, I received two letters in my email uh, one day um a letter from the Hong Kong Police Force and a letter from the Hong Kong National Security Bureau. Both letters effectively saying uh, that uh, uh Hong Kong Watch um poses a serious uh, threat to China's national security, uh, that our website is a violation of Hong Kong's national security law, uh, that we should take down the website within 72 hours uh, of receipt of the letter and failure to comply could result in me personally as the co-founder of Hong Kong Watch uh, uh, facing a hundred thousand Hong Kong dollar fine uh, and a prison term of anything between the first letter said between 1 year and 3 years and the second letter said between 3 years and life so quite a quite a broad uh, span there um uh, and uh the this threat was using um article 38 of the national security law which which does give uh the law um extraterritorial uh, application so basically it says that you don't have to be in hong kong you don't have to be a hong kong uh, citizen to um, be in breach of, of this law. You can be anywhere in the world. To my knowledge, I think I'm the first uh, foreigner, and Hong Kong Watch is the first foreign NGO mm. uh, to be to be threatened uh, under this law. Mm. Um, prior to, to that, I had received numerous other threats, not, I wouldn't say directly from the Hong Kong police, but from an, an, an anonymous person uh, writing to uh, my home address uh to my neighbours, to my mother. Um, And that's been going on for uh, two or three years now.
0: Hmm. So I suppose in many ways, it's almost a badge of honour and recognition for your hard work campaigning for uh, those those in Hong Kong. But if this is what we can expect from John Lee, who is targeting people quite literally on the other side of the world from him, how, how can we expect his leadership in Hong Kong to change domestically? How can we expect the transition from Carrie Lam, who was the one who introduced this national security law. How can we expect that transition from her to him to go?
1: Well, I think I would say if we thought Carrie Lam was bad, and and she was, um, uh, John Lee is going to be even worse. I think, um, I mean, Carrie Lam, and I'm I'm no defender of hers, but she did at least have um, a very extensive experience across uh, several government departments before she became chief executive. So she did understand uh, the breadth of of government um, policy issues, whereas John Lee, as I said earlier, his only knowledge is of security, of of locking up uh, uh, critics, uh, and of covering up uh, police violence. Um, I think he's going to be um, even more hardline, I think. um, And people who've met him have told me that he Uh, Unlike some other government officials in Hong Kong, uh, he really comes across as a uh, Communist Party uh, stooge, um, almost sort of trained in the the Chinese Communist Party way of doing things. Um, And just to give a few examples of what he's already hinted at, he he said clearly that he wants to fast track uh, the introduction of Article 23 of the Basic Law, which is the anti-subversion law which you would have thought the national security law would be enough but apparently uh they, they want to introduce article 23 to basically uh close any loopholes that the national security law uh hasn't managed to address and 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 wipe out any remaining vestiges not that there is very much uh, but any remaining vestiges of of freedom um he's also talked about uh addressing what he calls fake news which um obviously we all want to counter uh, really fake news but to, to a regime like that fake news means basically any news that they don't like and and uh, he's certain to do that um, and most uh, worryingly um, when he visited Xinjiang uh, a few years ago he apparently commented uh, uh, saying that uh, Hong Kong should learn from uh, the way that the Chinese Communist Party is handling Xinjiang um, and so that's a very ominous threat so I think Hong Kong is for is in for uh, even darker times under John Lee.
0: Absolutely, and you mentioned uh, uh, Lee's visit to Xinjiang in that Telegraph uh, piece. And as you say, Lee did say that uh, Beijing should start to take lessons from uh, the authorities there and try and apply those in Hong Kong. So just how concerned are you about the future of the pro-democracy movement under Lee's premiership, if if that's his attitude?
1: I'm deeply concerned. I mean, I think that um, it, it's possible that uh, he will be so bad that uh, he he will uh, inspire a sort of new uh, wave of resistance. But exactly how that would work out, I, I don't know, because I think um, the, uh, the 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 repression of the movement is already so severe and is only going to get more severe. So uh, I'm very worried. I think um, we will see more people. Jailed. We'll see uh, the rule of law. um, What's left of it, uh, pretty much uh, totally destroyed. Um, The the press freedom has already been dismantled, but I think any any last uh, elements of that will 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 go. Um, So I'm yeah, I'm I'm very worried.
0: (laughs) And of course, it isn't just uh, local protesters who've been targeted by the state apparatus. As it just recently, the 90-year-old Bishop Emeritus of Hong Kong, Cardinal Zen, was arrested for what the authorities call collusion with foreign forces. So, again, what, what does this say about the nature of Beijing's clampdown on freedom in Hong Kong, but also about the Catholic Church's position within China? Because, again, there's been a, really quite an alarming silence from the Vatican over the Cardinal's arrest.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it, it indicates... Um, uh, that Beijing wants to go even further than it's already gone in, in cracking down on, on all forms of dissent uh, in Hong Kong and arresting a 90-year-old internationally renowned cardinal um, was a sort of red line that I, I didn't actually think they would cross. I, I Obviously, he's been loathed by Beijing for years because he's been so outspoken, but I thought the fact that he was so well-known internationally and was a cardinal and and, was, and is 90 years old, mm. might uh, mean that they would uh, not cross that line, but, but they have. Uh, so I think that um, shows that things are going to get e- even worse. I think actually uh, religious freedom in Hong Kong is probably the next uh, target. Um, there are already signs that it's, it's being affected, and I think um, there will be more to come uh, on that. Um, the Vatican silence is is absolutely shocking. I mean, they they made a very sort of tepid statement saying they were watching it with concern, but nothing more than that. In, in contrast, the president of the Asian Bishops Conference, uh, uh, Cardinal Charles Bo of Myanmar, who I know uh, very well, uh, he issued a very strong statement condemning the arrest, describing Hong Kong as a police state, uh, asking the question, "How can?" Because um, Cardinal Zen was basically arrested because of his role as a trustee of a foundation that was providing legal aid to protesters uh, facing prosecution. And Cardinal Beau asked the question, how is it a crime to uh, help uh, somebody who's accused uh, have, um, have proper uh, legal representation? Um, so the Vatican's position is very concerning. There are other voices like Cardinal beau's within the Catholic Church who are, who are speaking out. But I think... Um, I've been calling for the Vatican to totally rethink its uh, approach. It it did this deal with Beijing uh, a few years ago over the appointment of bishops, and that deal seems to have completely compromised the Vatican, and uh, I I hope that they will uh, not renew the deal and will rethink their approach.
0: So uh, as we, we mentioned before, in 2019 2019 to 20 when those Hong Kong protests first started they really captured the world's attention the media was giving them constant coverage and for obvious reasons the media attention moved away from that. But now that we are entering this new phase in this police state that Hong Kong is, uh, is now finds itself in and under these leadership, do you think we will start to see protests on those that type of scale again, or do you think because the laws there are now so draconian, actually it isn't possible to protest in that way anymore without fear of imprisonment and perhaps even worse?
1: I think it's difficult to predict, and um, there have been times in the past where um, protests have happened in different parts of the world in in situations where you wouldn't have thought they would they would happen and sometimes people mm. reach a point where things are so desperate that they they just explode and and, and they can't uh, contain their their frustration uh, any longer so I don't rule that out but at the same time um it's also clear as you've said in 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 your question um that the laws are so draconian that anyone protesting uh does so in the full knowledge that they will face uh, potentially many years uh, in jail now, there may be some people well indeed there are even today people who've been arrested uh, uh and there may be more in the future, but um the scale of those protests i think is is difficult to protect predict, and I think many people in Hong Kong, very understandably are are just fearful they they don't want to spend years in in prison i mean who would and um uh, many of them I think are voting with their feet and and rather than protesting and risking jail, um, they're leaving Hong
0: Kong. well, we're going to go to another break. But when we come back, we'll be discussing the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. I'm still here with Benedict Rogers, the co-founder of Hong Kong Watch. Now, of course, this weekend we're celebrating Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But uh, we also uh, mark another very important anniversary this weekend, which is 33 years since the Tiananmen Square massacre. Now, for listeners who have perhaps heard of this event but aren't fully aware of the history around it, could you just give an overview of what exactly happened on the 4th of June, 1989?
1: Yes. So throughout uh, May and, and uh, early June, uh, protests took place uh, in uh, Tiananmen Square and indeed in other many other cities across China. Um, and the protests uh, was, were sparked by the death of, of one of the Chinese leaders who was seen as a, a more, more uh, reform-minded uh, leader. Um, and they basically were turned into protests demanding democracy. Uh, they were led by uh, students from from universities across Beijing and and throughout China, uh, and they were totally peaceful. They they were not uh, they were not violent. There was no justification for the crackdown that uh, that that came. Um, and essentially, what happened on June the fourth was that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, having having uh, allowed these protests to run for uh, some weeks, uh, and there had been various occasions where. Uh, Some of the party leaders had come out to the square, um, and actually Zhao Ziyang, who was one of the more liberal-minded leaders, (coughs) uh, had come to the square shortly before June the 4th to warn the students and to try to plead with the students to leave so that um, they didn't face what he knew was coming. But on June the 4th, uh, the party ordered the tanks and troops uh, into the square, And essentially, they opened fire, um, and uh, not only in the square itself, but in surrounding streets Mm -hmm. and across Beijing. And it's estimated, um, the figures I've seen, that uh, at least 10,000 people were were killed. Um, And there was the famous scene, uh, actually on on June the 5th, and I think in the morning of June the 5th, of what became known as Tank Man, the the, uh, amazing, courageous, unknown individual who Um, stood in front of a tank and actually at one point climbed onto the tank uh, to plead with the tank driver. Um, I spoke recently for um, a a book that I've been writing uh, with a Canadian journalist, Jan Wong, who was in the square uh, that that night uh, and and the following morning. And she actually saw the tank man uh, incident happen uh, right in front of her. But she also saw the gunfire and indeed told me how She'd been at one point watching uh, the scenes from the balcony of her hotel on the edge of the square uh, and actually a bullet uh, came very close to her um, and hit the wall of of her hotel just inches from her. So um, yeah, it was an absolute massacre and and a huge tragedy.
0: Yeah, I mean I mean that that number of people who've been killed its it's almost unimaginable, really, to try and quantify that. And of course you mentioned there the the iconic photo of tank man there just standing in front of those tanks. But why was Tiananmen Square such a turning point in how the world viewed China?
1: Well, I think it was uh, a turning point. Um, at least for a time, um, because the idea of a government unleashing its uh, tanks and, and guns on a totally unarmed, defenseless, uh, peaceful people was just so abhorrent and, and, and shocking to everyone. Um, and so for a period, uh, uh, there were sanctions put on China. There the, the was uh, an effort by the international community to uh, uh, deliver the message that this, <laughs> this is totally unacceptable. Unfortunately, my my critique of the international community is that we should have known then uh, that this is the true character of the Chinese Communist Party and we should therefore have pursued a a different policy from what um, uh, we did for for some years. But instead, uh, after a a relatively short period uh, following the the massacre where um, we we did uh, impose sanctions, um, we then embraced uh, China economically. Um, uh for a period of time in the UK, we had what uh, was known as the golden era of Sino-British relations. We emphasized trade with China. And it was almost as if we totally forgot what happened on June the 4th, uh, 1989. Now, I think people are starting now to, to wake up 33 years later because of some of the is- issues that we've just been talking about, Xinjiang and, and Hong Kong. But um, I, I wonder, it's, it's easy to say this with hindsight, but I wonder if we had... Uh, really learned the lessons of Tiananmen and pursued a different policy for longer, maybe some of the things we're seeing today might not have happened. Yeah,
0: Yeah, quite possibly. And you've written an article for The Spectator about the anniversary called What the Tiananmen Square Massacre Teaches Us About Xi's China. So for those who haven't read the article yet, and I would highly recommend you read the article, it's uh, very good. Uh, What does the Tiananmen Square Massacre teach us about Xi Jinping's China?
1: I think it teaches us that uh, the Chinese Communist Party regime um, uh, has no respect for, for human life, for human dignity, for human rights. Uh, and that, um, yes, there were, there were periods through the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s where it appeared that the regime had relaxed slightly and there was a, a bit more space for uh, civil society and for independent media and. Uh, human rights lawyers and so on and I, saw, I experienced that myself and I certainly don't deny that that happened um, but nevertheless uh, at its heart this is a regime that uh, is totally intolerant of, of dissent uh, that actually in contrast to the image it wants to portray which is an image of strength I think it's actually a very uh, insecure and fearful regime because it's fearful of, of any form of protest or dissent and uh, in Xi's China, I, I say in the article that, uh, uh, in effect, we're seeing a, a series of slow motion Tiananmen massacres uh, uh, in China today, not necessarily with tanks and, and bullets, but uh, in other forms, um, with the weaker genocide, the atrocities in mm-hmm. Tibet, uh, the worst crackdown on Christians since uh, uh, the Cultural Revolution uh, uh, down on all uh, civil society and, and what's happened in Hong Kong.
0: The monument to the massacre at the University of Hong Kong was removed by the authorities about six months ago. And in the UK, we currently have this debate about whether or not we should remove statues or rename them or give additional context to them. But for an event as significant as Tiananmen Square, how dangerous is it to effectively erase history and stop people learning about one of China's most important moments?
1: I think it's extremely dangerous. Um, we've we can see from uh, media reports and documentaries and, and books. That there's an excellent book by a journalist called Louisa Lim called "The People's Republic of Amnesia," uh, uh, which shows that in mainland China, because of the regime's censorship and propaganda, uh, actually people, you know, below the age of of thirty or so. Um, uh, genuinely don't know what happened uh, on the 4th of June 1989, uh, or if they do know, they don't admit to, to knowing. And I fear that a similar situation could uh, emerge in Hong Kong over over time, um, because, as you say, they've dismantled uh, monuments. Uh, uh, Hong Kong used to be, the, uh, until just a couple of years ago, the only place under Beijing's rule where it was still possible legally and publicly to commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre uh, and now uh, the police have made it very clear that uh, it's a criminal offense to do so that people will be severely punished face several years in jail uh, and um, and I think over time I mean right now people still remember and still know and they they're still trying defiantly in very subtle and creative ways to uh, to mark the occasion but um, over time I think uh, that propaganda and that censorship could have uh, a very dangerous effect.
0: Okay, well, we're going to go to one last break, but when we come back, we'll be looking at Bendix's new book, The China Nexus. Welcome back. So we've, we've been looking so far at the Chinese authorities' attitudes towards Hong Kong and Xinjiang in persecuting the Uyghurs, but you've, you've been looking at this recently in your new book, The China Nexus. So could you just give an outline of what your new book is about?
1: Yes, um, the book is basically trying to look at um, all of, or as much as possible, all of the major uh, human rights uh, issues um, uh, <coughs> in China and, and for which the Chinese Communist Party regime is responsible. So it looks at the situation in Hong Kong, in Tibet, uh, the, the Uyghur genocide, uh, forced organ harvesting, the persecution of Christians, the, the crackdown on civil society and, and lawyers and, and dissidents. Uh, and it also has chapters looking at um, the Chinese regime's relationship with uh, both uh, with two countries on its borders that I've worked very actively on um, uh, where real atrocities, crimes against humanity are being committed, uh, mm-hmm. Myanmar and North Korea. Uh, and it has a chapter on the threats to Taiwan uh, and a final chapter on what the international community should do. And it draws also on, um, when I first went to China when I was 18 to uh, uh, teach English, and I uh, went, I traveled to China very regularly and very widely for many years until I was no longer able to go because of uh, the, the regime. Um, and so it draws a bit on my personal experiences as well. It's not a, a personal memoir, it's it's first and foremost mm. about the issues, but it does draw on some of my, uh, my experiences. Um, and I, I I interviewed over eighty uh, people for the book: um, Uyghurs, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, Chinese uh, dissidents, um, and also policy uh, experts from from around the world. Mm.
0: Well, it it sounds like a, a fascinating book, and especially touching on the areas where China interacts with other neighbouring countries. And we know some of the. Uh, appalling uh, situations that happen in those neighboring countries, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Timothy Cho, uh, came, came on the show to discuss his uh, life in North Korea and uh, how he escaped twice uh, from the country. but j- just looking at the the section you mentioned before about uh, the how the the international community should respond and uh, how the the West should act around China, what do you see as the, the future relationship between the west and China?
1: Well, I think um, what what I say in that chapter is I, I describe uh, the ways in which actually uh, the West, and not only the West, I also look at Japan and and India and um, uh, Korea and, and, and some of China's neighbours as well, um, the way in which in the last few years, because of uh, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, conduct, um, thinking has already started to change and some uh, actions have been taken and, and there's been a uh, a rise in uh, civil society groups focused on these issues around the world. Um, and then I look at what, what should be done next. And to answer your question, um, one of the things I'm very keen to come through the book is a distinction between China and the Chinese Communist Party regime. I'm actually very pro-China as a country. I, I you know, spent many years there. I have many Chinese friends. Uh, I love China. And it's precisely because I'm pro-China that I want uh, China to enjoy human rights and basic freedoms. Um, And that's why I'm so critical of the Chinese Communist Party regime. And I think that's an important distinction to make, uh, particularly because the regime itself will uh, accuse critics of the CCP of being anti-China, and it's important to counter that. Um, I I hope that um, the... The West will wake up to the uh, dangers that the Chinese Communist Party regime poses and um, the, the intense repression that it inflicts on its own people, but also the dangers and threats it poses to uh, the free world. And that we will really, um, I think we're starting to do it, but I think we will, uh, I hope we will really change uh, the way we approach China and basically stop uh, kowtowing to the regime and, um, and start standing up for for our values um and uh, and and i don't like to use the word decoupling but but certainly um diversifying our uh economic relationships uh, and stop putting so much emphasis on that one relationship
0: and and just on trying to if, if you want the best word decoupling Uh, Last time we spoke, uh, Liz Truss had only just been appointed as Foreign Secretary, and at the time you were quite optimistic about her uh, taking on the Foreign Office. But now that she's been in the role for a few months, how do you think she's doing in the job? Do you think uh, she is presenting a stronger strategy on China and uh, indeed on other issues relating to it?
1: I think um, overall I'm I'm fairly encouraged. I think she has... um had a tendency to speak out more strongly than some of her predecessors. She's issued statements more regularly. She's um, had quite a focus on China in many of her speeches. Uh, I think the the thinking around the new approach to international development is very interesting because that's clearly aimed at uh, trying to to counter China's influence through its Belt and Road uh, Initiative and, and the debt dependency. Uh, approach that it's taken in the developing world. Um, I think there's more uh, she could do uh, uh, to translate the rhetoric into uh, concrete policy, um, and I hope she will do that. Um, but so far, I would say the, the sort of mood and the rhetoric is um, is welcome. And ju- just before we finish, this
0: weekend is, of course, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. How, how have you found the celebrations so far, and what, what do you make of the Queen's 70-year reign?
1: Well, I think it's been completely remarkable. I mean, both, uh, obviously, her 70-year reign is um, unprecedented. We've never had a, a monarch uh, serve mm-hmm. as long as she has. Um, uh, and it's highly unlikely that we will, uh, again, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and the way she's um, served our country um, and continues, we sh- shouldn't talk about her in the past mm-hmm. sense, of um, uh, continues to serve. Um uh, with such uh courage and wisdom and, and dignity um is is quite remarkable and i think um I think you'd be really hard mm-hmm. and pushed to find anyone who um who wouldn't say what i what i've just said but i but i genuinely yeah. mean it um and I think the celebrations have been really wonderful i think um there's quite a mood of um after the well with the very challenging times that we're in the war in ukraine, the cost of living crisis but also the two years that we had of of lockdowns uh, due to COVID. Um, There's a real sense of of coming together, of communities uh, uniting. Um, And I didn't uh, join in person the events in uh, the Mall and in central London, but I followed a a lot of it uh, on television. Um, And I did join a a local um, uh, event yesterday. Um, And I I just think it's a wonderful atmosphere. Mm Yeah, and how do, how do you think that the Queen
0: has championed uh, human rights issues throughout her her seventy year reign?
1: Well, I think she's um, first of all she's she's had a deep understanding of her constitutional role, and she's she's mm. always been clear in um, in a sense. It's a, it's a slight, it's an odd system to have an unelected uh, monarch in a democracy, but I think it really works, and I think she is. In many ways, a guardian of our democracy, because she doesn't, she knows that her role is not to interfere in politics, but rather to to be above it. Um, and I, th- I think she functions, therefore, as actually a, a safeguard for for our democracy and, and freedoms. Um, and I think um, around the world, uh, um, I mean, I know that uh, although she doesn't get involved in politics, I think um, as head of the Commonwealth, uh, she presided over a Commonwealth that. Um, had a significant role in addressing apartheid in South Africa. Um, I think on some of her travels, she's uh, you know she's been a symbol and a beacon of um, of, of good values. So I, I can't think of a particular way she's addressed human rights uh, overtly, and in a sense that's not her role. But I think the symbolism around her um, is a symbolism of of our freedoms. Yeah, and
0: just briefly on the on the future of the the Commonwealth in in recent months. Um, many uh, Commonwealth member states have, seem to be aligning themselves with China and them falling into these so-called debt traps. And do, do you think many countries around the world or even many people are aware of just how much influence China's starting to have over the Commonwealth, in particular, encouraging countries like Barbados, for example, to remove the Queen as, as head of state? And what, what's what's the wider impact that this has?
1: Yes, I think um, I think it's something that is should be taken very seriously. I think people are starting to wake up to it. Um, as I said earlier, I, I think uh, Liz Truss's thinking on international development policy mm. is has this in mind. Um, and I hope that we will um, uh, really reinvigorate the Commonwealth and renew our links with uh, countries in the Commonwealth and find ways to uh, to counter this threat, because um, it, it definitely is real and we, we do need to wake up to it.
0: Okay. And finally, uh, your new book, The China Nexus, when's it out?
1: Uh, it's out in October. Um, uh, and the, the one of the reasons for that timing is that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has its 20th Party Congress <laughs> in October, and the publishers thought that uh, it might be good to give them a, a surprise gift with this new book. <laughs> Absolutely. Well,
0: uh, we're very much looking forward to reading it, and we'd love to have you back on the show when it is out. Benedict Rogers, thank you very much for taking time to speak to me today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.